I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Before we start today's episode, we do want to disclose that respective services provided by Argy Investment Services, a registered investment advisor, Argy CPAs and advisors, Argy Business Services, and Advisor Insurance Solutions are all affiliates of Argy Financial Group. Trust services provided by Argy Trust, a division of Advocacy Trust. Now let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, first ever in-person interview, we upgraded the audiovisual shout out to Lily and Meredith from our team for helping us get organized. Hopefully this will continue to improve, but we're trying to do more in person. And as you'll see, Kelly is she wanted to do this in person. So here we are doing it in person. And it was a good <laughs> impetus to get organized and to kind of level up our game. So I'm excited. With that, let's do intros. Why don't you all introduce yourselves? We'll start with Kelly and then we'll move on to Matt. Okay. I'm Kelly Imran, and I do business development for the multifamily office for Argy Financial from Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And I've been at Argy for five years. And before that, I was actually in the real estate space. So we have that in common. I had my broker's license for 15 years, did commercial and new construction, and then at the same time also owned multiple businesses. And then as those were exiting out, I was looking for something different. And I had been working with commercial investors and I loved the putting together the partnerships. I loved finding the properties. And so that led me to call a friend of mine who's a vice president at Argy and say, I don't even know what I'm looking for, but I'm looking for something different. And he said, don't make another call because it just so happened they were opening an Elizabethtown office, which is where I'm from, an Argy Elizabethtown office. And he said, I don't have time to do business development. Came on first time really I'd ever worked for anyone since college, right after college, and just fell in love with it. Loved it. And then quickly moved up to doing things firm-wide, all the branches, and then now have moved in the past year working with Matt and our team on the family office. So Matt, same question for you. Background, story, how'd you end up working with Kelly? Background story. So I'm the director of the multifamily office for Argy Financial Group. I'm a practicing attorney by background. I practiced law for about 10 years. I have a tax background. I was in the M&A in estate planning and business law space. I exited the practice of law and entered financial services, which was kind of a natural fit. I'd spent five years with one of the larger trust companies doing kind of multifamily office type work. And I realized that I wanted to actually extend into the multifamily office space and do more than we were able to do. It was kind of interesting. I met Joe Reeves, our CEO, and we had lunch and I'd been putting together a business plan for a family that approached me to run their single family office. And I realized that I need a lot more resources than I had. Where I was working didn't have any resources at all really outside of me. So if I came up with a plan for estate planning or for some sort of business merger or some sort of succession plan for a business, 
I had to reach to outside resources to actually get it implemented. And over lunch with Joe, Joe said, well, why don't you come work with us? We have all those resources. So he was able to, to pair up what he had internally with what I had as my vision. And over the past five years, we've built it out to what's now the multifamily office at our financial group. So maybe help us kind of define the space we're operating in here because, you know, this old school world of just working with a wirehouse is, is really going away. And I think it's important that people understand the differentiator between a broker dealer, an RIA, a single family office, a multifamily office. Maybe, Kelly, if you could start, how do you explain to people that don't necessarily come from financial services background what a multifamily office is? Yeah, a lot of people, if I ask me what I do and I say that they don't really understand what that means, but... Not apartment deals. Not apartment deals, no. <laughs> right. Not commercial buildings, but yeah, not multifamily. Well, for the single family office, as you know, that's you know, often a private company that is run for a family and their business and financial dealings. And so that they often have their own in-house employees or they outsource. And that's typically just handling one family and their generations. And so for the multifamily, and we're an RIA, so we serve multiple families. But it's so it just gives an option for those that are considering maybe if they want to do a single family office, if they're at the level of wealth and complexity that they're considering that this gives them another option where they can be aggregated with other clients. We maintain a very small client to advisor ratio. So they're still getting almost like their own set of employees, but it's offering those services to more than one family within our RIA. And Matt, I want to hear your commentary here because you mentioned something about resources and, and access and part of your journey to where you landed with RG. I know our family, when we moved to a multifamily office platform, it, it seems like just the pure cost and the overhead of running a single family office in a proper sense has just gone up precipitously over the last 10, 20 years. And the AUM necessary to pay for that overhead has has become really expensive. Is that one of the things that you experienced as well during your process? Yeah. I mean, it, it's all about a question of resources. And to kind of go back to your first question, what's the difference between a single family office, multifamily office, RIA, and, and broker-dealer? Each one has different levels of resource that they're actually able to apply. The single family office, you know, cost, there are a lot of barriers to entry to getting into the single family office space. Cost isn't the driver, but cost is a huge consideration for most of the families. I think the literature is all over the place, but, you know, to get a multifamily office set up, it usually costs somewhere around one to $2 million, depending on what direction you go with your structure. If you're an RIA, you know, there's the legal cost of setting it up, staffing, benefits, everything that you have to pay all the employees that are going to be running your company. If you're in the private trust company space, that's a totally different set of regulators that you're answering to, a totally different type of compliance that you're dealing with. So single family offices, you know, the setup cost is usually, at least most of the literature's consensus is it's somewhere between one and two million to set it up. And then ongoing, it's about 1%. And the question that most people are kind of considering the difference between do I go single family or do I go multifamily? The question is always, what am I getting for what I'm paying, but also what resources are available? And do we actually need, you know, can we get these same types of resources from a multifamily office and pay basis points as opposed to paying 1% of our total net worth, plus all the startup costs that come along with it. And this is where I think between <laughs> the show Billions and the Archegos kind of fiasco, family offices are now becoming above the fold in the newspaper, right? They're, they're top of mind, topical, and it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Are you seeing anything from a regulatory standpoint that is also helping kind of grow these platforms like yours that have resources and compliance and back office and those type of things as well? I think it really what it comes down to is a level of scrutiny. And, you know, every RIA has an audit at some point, whether they're a state level RIA or a federal RIA. And, you know, I think there's a lot more scrutiny involved once you start getting into those regulatory environments. We have multiple partners in our business. I call them partners because, you know, they're always kind of looking over our shoulder. So we're an ESOP company. So we have the Department of Labor that we have to answer to. We're a uh, RIA. So we have the RIA regulators, but we also have a trust company. So we have the state... Uh, the various states' financial departments that we have to answer to as well. The more complexity you add, the more cost that adds and the more time that adds that you have to devote to actually making sure that you're answering the questions when they come, that you have the, you're staffed out to actually meet the audits head on when they come and that you can actually survive an audit without too much change. 
there's so much going on in the regulatory environment. And I'm not by any means a regulatory expert, but you know, there's just so much of a shift with money moving away from 401ks to IRAs. You know, there's a lot more scrutiny about around those with the types of investments that are getting reviewed and the increasing use of alternative investments and the regulatory environment that's developing around that cryptocurrency and the regulatory environment that could be developing around that that doesn't currently exist. So there's just a lot out there. And, and I don't think we're going to an era of less regulation. I think we're going in the direction of more regulation and more oversight, which means that the single family office is going to have to be large enough to justify its existence before turning to somebody else that has the compliance infrastructure to be able to answer those questions and be able to deal with the regulators. Yeah, I, I personally think true single family offices today that are done, quote unquote, right, you probably need 500 million of AUM. And they're really becoming their own asset class and their own player within the private equity space. But let's back up and I want to hear from Kelly. Every family has a story, right? And that's one of the fun parts about interacting with family offices is understanding their narrative and the genesis story and, and how they got to where they are today. What's RG's story? It's funny you said that because that's my absolute favorite part of my job is the people that we get to meet. And we work with a lot of generation one wealth where they're business owners that have just recently had a large liquidity event. So to see them, the success that they had in their business and how it came to be, and then to help them work through the complexities that comes with that success, and then helping them decide what they want to do, what their goals are. So I just love the story part. But for Argy, it's just another true entrepreneurial story. They started as pretty much just a typical financial planning business, just the two of them, and then have just grown just by being responsive to what their clients need. So as their book, they remember when they hit a million of AUM, and now we're at almost 5 billion. And so they remember, you know, of course, remember those milestones. But as they grew, they were just responsive to as their clients were needing advice from maybe an attorney, or they were needing estate planning or help with their taxes. And so the advisors, the ARG advisors were constantly reaching out to those partners and being those coordinators. And so they realized, you know, we can bring a lot of this in-house. We can't do all the things. You know, we can't draft documents. Our attorneys don't do that, but we can advise. We can have a CPA firm that is a part of the ARGI infrastructure that we can help and do taxes. And so we're not having to reach out to the CPA. We're having to walk down the hall to talk to the CPA or if they need estate planning advice or if they have a business, which, like I said, is a lot of our clients and they want 401k or a cash balance plan. So anyway, just the ARGI story really is just being responsive to the needs and growing and being extremely growth, having an extreme growth mindset, being very entrepreneurial, taking care of employees. I mean, I could go on and on, but about all the things that kind of make us unique. But I love that part of the story of how it's grown to now 250 employees, nine branches, just from two guys that had an idea kind of want to meet their clients where they were and build something different. And I'm not just being nice because you guys are in the room with me, but you can feel the entrepreneurial spirit when you meet with the team members. And I think that really shows through in a way that some of these older, more you know, traditional broker-dealer firms just don't. I mean, they're looking for AUM, kind of pretty much bottom line. And I, I want to hear, I'm not sure who's best to answer this, might be a two-parter from both of you, but I run across a lot of firms that throw around the term multifamily office and once you kind of peel back the onion, it's just not true. It's just a marketing gimmick. But after, you know, you all hosting us at your offices and meeting a lot of the team members over the course of probably two years now, if not more, you guys are a legit multifamily office. And, and there aren't a lot in the Southeast, especially the Mid-South. I think it's actually kind of a problem, in my opinion. You guys are bringing a right solution set to the marketplace. But what was the internal thought process there intentionally saying, we're going to bring people like Kelly and Matt in, and we're going to build out this multifamily office practice within the infrastructure of the firm? What did that look like? Yeah, I think there are multiple parts there because you know if you really think about it, to your point, if you peel back the onion, really what it comes down to is it's an investment shop that has some bolt-on planning, potentially. They may focus on estate planning. Uh, they may focus on insurance. They're they may bring different solutions to the table. What, what kind of makes this very unique, and a lot of CPA firms, if you look, have tried to do this where they've done it the opposite direction, where you have you start with a CPA firm and they want to add a wealth management arm. And most of them really aren't successful with it. Or the ones they have to put a lot of resources behind it. This is just something that's grown very organically over time. And to Kelly's point, really all we've done over the years is just whenever there's a critical mass of clients that have a specific need, we just build the need around it. So our firm has a 50-person, roughly, CPA firm nestled inside it. And what we wanted to do was take all of the resources that we had and apply those across the board to our clients. Our job really is just coordination more than anything else. 
So we have outsourced CFO. So for those clients that have a business, those clients that the main generator of wealth was their business, we can actually help them all the way from the point where they're still operating the business to maximize value in that business through the exit into retirement or into whatever it is that they're, they're, the next part of their journey actually is. And that's really what we wanted to build was something that brought all the resources that we had to bear on each one of those clients. And not every client's using every single part of the resource that we have. A multifamily office to us is answering in a coordinated way all of those needs that a client has in their financial life to match up with all the goals that they have in their financial life. So, you know, I'll give you a great example. We have a client that we've been working with recently who's a current business owner, has very little outside AUM. And just like most business owners, he's been plowing a lot of his wealth back into his business. So we've been working with him on how to build his business in a really constructive way, how to start taking distributions out of the business to start funding his lifestyle and build a nest egg outside the business. But we've also been working with him through our CFO, our business services team and our CFO group, because he's been trying to attract new talent and we're building a non-qualified stock and incentive stock plan for him. Well, the interesting thing with that is there's an impact on the business that flows through to him as the business owner. So he's going to be diluting his interest. There's going to be a change in the capital structure of the business. There's probably going to be a cash flow change that he's going to need to project out over time. And he also has some estate planning needs as well. So we're working with him on both sides of the house to figure out if we pull the lever here inside the business and we're going to impact value and dilution, what does that do to your outcome, say in five years, 10 years, 20 years when you decide to sell the business or when you decide to start scaling back. And all those decisions are all intertwined with one another. So to me, the family office is really carrying the family through the entire financial life cycle of the family, whatever that is, but being able to start at any point. You can start at the exit. You can start before the exit. You can start after the exit. So you can work with the blue blood families that are Gen 2, Gen 3, Gen 4, or you can work with the business owners and the startups, the guys that are the serial entrepreneurs to meet the needs there. So to me, a family office really is the ability to kind of work with just about any client and build a custom solution for any one of them that you need to build. And Kelly, when you're interacting with a new you know, potential client, you tell the story, you interface with them, you seem like communication is really important from the firm standpoint and from your own kind of way that you live your life. It's not all pros, right? And, and not every family is a fit for your firm. What are maybe some of the, not red flags, but things that you're very transparent about in terms of these are bright line rules for us or these fact patterns are not a fit? maybe not necessarily cons, but identities or groups that you say, maybe we can make some introductions for you elsewhere, that kind of thing. You know, honestly, that hasn't happened, thankfully, that many times. But you're right. I mean, it's not a perfect, nothing is a perfect fit for everyone. You know, when someone is coming looking for this kind of offering, often too, what they need is, which is is a role I play often, is that relationship, that person to coordinate, as Matt said, that we're often that coordination point of all that they have going on. I don't think we have a single client that is a part of our family office that you wouldn't call has a complex life or situation. So, you know, I think sometimes when it doesn't fit is if someone is just really, maybe they have a high amount of wealth and investable assets, but they're really just looking for, you know, offerings that maybe they can only feel like they could only get from Goldman or from name any of the bigger players that they do have access to different deals that we just don't. But although we do pride ourselves on, on having a great deal flow and bringing opportunities to our clients, but we have had that happen a few times where somebody has grown up with money or maybe just came into money to assets that they want to invest. And they kind of want that, I guess, I don't know what the word is, but they feel like they need to go somewhere bigger to really get what they need, whether that's the case or not. So sometimes that could happen. Otherwise, it's someone, I can't think, I mean, Matt, you might, I'm drawing a blank, but I can't think of another situation that has risen with us that has really stood as a barrier. I think there are kind of two areas where we need to be really careful about promising something that we can't necessarily deliver on. I think one of those is with a business owner that has a business that has some sort of specialty attached to it, that we're probably not the best person to give them advice. There may be some manufacturing concerns, some people that have international elements to their business. In those cases, most often we partner with another outside firm. We can fit in somewhere in that mix. Sometimes we're actually coordinating our own efforts, but we're coordinating other people's efforts as well. And to Kelly's point, I do think that there are some clients that also 
also want the name attached. You know, and if somebody has said, you know, I've been talking to Goldman, I've been talking to JP. Well, we are very honest about what we can and what we can't do. What we can do in the sense that the type of advice that JP can't give or Goldman can't give, but some of the deal flow that they get, we just don't have access to without going through them. So that to me, I wouldn't call it a red flag, but it doesn't play in our favor at times when we have to deal with very specialized issues. And especially we represent largely the Southeastern United States, the Midwest. You know, to Kelly's point, I think from a deal flow standpoint, that's probably one of the best values in the country, you know, staying away from the coast. But there are people that want that exposure that's going to be Silicon Valley based, New York based, Boston based, that we really can't give them because once it gets to us, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's kind of beaks and feet. We're on round five. You know, the valuations are really high. We like to get ahead of valuation. We like to get on these companies on the ground floor. And I think the greatest value to be had is really in the Midwest. And if we have clients that are interested in that, that I think will ultimately be a category killer in that space. So I want to return to the alternatives conversation. But before we get there, Kelly, I would love to hear your thoughts here. During In your experience, considering your role, if somebody is evaluating a multifamily office or you know potentially pursuing a single family officer, they're looking for some type of solution set platform. What are the right questions for them to ask a group like yours? There's a Matt, you'll have to jump in here on this as well. But I think asking to me, this is what I would want to know. And this is often what we get asked is how many clients do we have? What are our offerings? But I think the probably the question we get asked the most, which I love when we get this, is our access to private and alternative investments, because that truly is something in our region that not all firms offer. They just don't they can maybe do the due diligence, offer to do that, but they're not bringing and vetting those opportunities to bring to their clients. So that seems to be a great differentiator for us. And so I think we get asked that very, very often. It's one of the first questions. So let's get into it. I mean, that's how we initially connected. Obviously, you know, we have commercial real estate offerings and we work with groups like yours. It's my opinion that the value proposition for some of these bigger firms, in terms of the access you alluded to, there may still be some IPOs or some very esoteric products that groups like yours can't necessarily provide, but I think it's really diminishing. And it's no longer a value proposition, I think, to reduce your fee structure. In my experience working with our investor base, these people want education and access, right? So education around different alternative strategies and and niche managers and and best-in-class ideas and then how to act upon that education once they get up to speed there. So can you talk a little bit about your platform, your process, and and, and how you do work with your clients on the alternative side? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. The other question that we get, it's not just what do you have, it's how are you getting your deal flow? The amazing thing that we found, two parts to that. One, the amazing thing that we found is our clients are some of our best deal flow. We have a due diligence team that we've offered as a way for our clients to do due diligence on their own deals. But oftentimes we're looking at those deals with an eye toward adding whatever the investment is that the client's bringing us or potentially adding whatever the investment is the client's bringing us from their friends, from a seminar they've been to, from just being online to our portfolio or to other clients that might be similar, similarly minded to, to them. So that's been a pretty amazing development. The other one is we just got a fund up and running and you'd be surprised at how many people reach out to you when they find out that you have money to deploy. So I don't know if I would be, but yeah. 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 So that's been a huge differentiator for us as well. And that's actually helped us with a lot of our deal flow. We've probably since, you know, I talked with our alts team, which I'm a member of the due diligence team from both a legal perspective, but also from a client utilization perspective, because the family office is the biggest user of the alts platform. But I asked about how many deals we had seen since we started the fund. And we had seen somewhere north of 150 deals just in the past year. Of those, we've only accepted 10, 15, 20. And the fund has only accepted a small number of those. So we've got the process built and we can handle more in the pipeline because our clients are hungry for it. And that we're just watching the pipeline grow on a daily basis. It's been really amazing. And I'll put some editorial comment in here. After doing this for 10 plus years and, and interfacing with groups like yours, I can tell you that... <laughs> And multifamily office, an RIA that has discretionary capital or has a very good relationship with their clients where they can act quickly, that's a wonderful thing from a sponsor perspective, right? Because I have faith and confidence that if I show you an opportunity and you act on it and you follow through and you actually you know, show up with the allocation that obviously contingent on diligence, et cetera. But when that happens, it's not rocket science. You end up getting better deal flow. Yeah. Right. Because what we often see in this space 
especially from groups that have left from a wirehouse where they're used to having internal product that just gets pushed through the system or that they can cross sell you on. They interact with a group like me and they say, oh, well, you know, I think we have a ton of appetite here, you know, pencil me in for a million. And I take them for their word. And then I realize, oh my gosh, they're just running around talking to clients haphazardly, willy nilly and passing the hat. And then they come to me and say, hey, I only have 250K, which I never begrudge an allocation or a number, but you can't do that in our business. That's a really good way to make sure that <laughs> I talk to all my sponsor friends and my fund managers, and we all talk, especially in these part of the world. And to your point about deal flow, I mean, I know I've made a number of introductions for you all because you're awesome to work with. That just builds on itself, right? And so I think that's hugely important and why I like your structure so much. I'm curious, Kelly, since you interact with a lot of the clients directly, what are you hearing and seeing right now in terms of appetite level for private? You know, is it across the board they're just looking to allocate or are there some certain things that you're getting great responses from or you're getting inbound saying, would love to learn more about this, that, or the other? There is a very large appetite. And I think a lot of that might also come from the fact that we do work with a lot of business owners, risk takers, entrepreneurs, but some of our clients you know, really only when they think of an alternative, it seems like they really only feel safe, so to speak, with something that they understand. So real estate is perfect for that. And so we also love working with your group. I mean, I'll just return the compliments very sincerely and that I've heard nothing but great things about how great your team is to work with. You know, how everything's very transparent, clean, quick. So our clients, I mean, they like real estate because they can visit it if they want to. They can see it. They get it. So there's definitely always an appetite for real estate, but they trust our process and especially longer term clients. They want us to bring us anything that that we've approved, that we've vetted or want us to bring them anything that has kind of made it through our filter point. But there's definitely a high appetite for alt in general just to diversify away from the public markets. And then there's always, at least for our clients, the most appetite for real estate. And after hitting the, and I'll get, I want to hear Matt's thoughts here too, but after hitting the conference circuit pretty hard for the last 10 years and interacting with new family offices, one of the funniest things to me is always, you know, the, maybe the family had a liquidity event because they were in the forestry business or they were in the manufacturing business. And then all of a sudden they now want to become hedge fund specialists or commercial real estate professionals. And then they hire somebody and the biggest challenge they have is deal flow because they've been heads down in their business and they hire somebody and that person, it takes three, four, maybe five years, right? Because there is there is a marketplace problem where there are groups looking to allocate and there are groups like me who operate and sponsor, but hard to find each other. Getting easier with technology and social media, but building that trust, it, it takes time, right? You came, I think I met Richie through an introduction. I have family in Louisville. There's all these touch points that happen over the course of a couple of years that then bring people together. And I think people really underestimate how much time and resources it takes to get really good deal flow. That doesn't even begin to start with the diligence and then the allocation. So Matt, would love to hear your thoughts about how you all have set things up. And I'm sure it was a process, right? Iterative over time. What did it look like day one? And, and what does it look like today for you guys? Yeah. So the process that we've developed has been really deliberate. We wanted to make sure that we had a good cross section of people that could look at it from the client perspective, but also look at it from a safety and investment perspective. So we have two CFAs on our team that are looking at the underlying investment and the economics. We have Richie Ferris, who leads our alternatives platform. He's sourcing deals, but he's also doing due diligence. He's doing the site visits, the interviews and all the other work. Part of our CCO, our uh, chief compliance officer and the compliance team does research on the individuals. And then when Shane Hall and I and Aaron O'Reilly all sit on the alternatives platform, we're in the family office. We're trying to look immediately for fit. And you asked the question a second ago about the clients, what their needs are, what their desires are. And I think a lot of clients, that's really just driven by where they are in their life and what they want to build into a portfolio. And a lot of that's market driven too, because clients are seeing markets as being overvalued. They don't really want to go into the public space. They're afraid that they're going to take a hit there. They want something that has some stability, something that may have some tax benefits tied to it, something that's going to provide income for them. They may be turning off one income stream and needing to start another. And to do that in a very tax efficient package is really beneficial for them. So we have a checklist every single time a new deal comes through. It might be a VC deal. We know which clients are going to be interested in it or which portfolios we need to add it to. Whenever there's an income deal, like a private credit deal, we know exactly who's interested in private credit and why and where it's going to fit in their portfolio. 
when we have clients that are interested in real estate, we look at their entire real estate portfolio. We don't just look at what they have with us. We're looking at, you know, they may have commercial buildings that they own outside of us. They may have residential buildings they own outside of us. So what we try to do is just make sure that we are looking at the whole person and the whole family and not over allocating in a certain area, even though a client of ours may really like real estate, it may not be the best thing for them to get into at a given time. Or geographically, they may need some diversification as well. They may be concentrated in Kentucky or Indiana or Ohio or one of those other states. They may need to add something to the portfolio that might be in Florida. So, you know, there's so many different questions there that you have to answer and you have to know the clients really well to know what their appetite is, but also to know what their needs are. So really it just comes back to goals and it comes back to matching up a solution with a goal. And a huge benefit for firms like yours, I think, is because I look at as a sponsor, I look at you all as one relationship. It allows your clients to maybe put a toe in the water for, you know, a lower commitment level and still get that same experience, right? That same touch where if it was just a one-off individual, you know, I'd be maybe a little bit more hesitant to, you know, allow in for a lower minimum or to build that relationship. And so I think that's part of this too, is oftentimes a challenge that single family offices have is because they are so short staffed, you know, their minimums are really hard because they just don't have the capacity to do less. And I think that ultimately hurts their deal flow. And I think it ultimately hurts their relationship growing because if your minimum is a million, two, three, four, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that you can't necessarily access. And that's a big choice, right? And so I really like the way that you all are, are structured. What do you think moving forward? I think question for both of you in terms of, you know, the private space and alternatives, anything that, that you all are working on, any feedback you're getting from your clients? Well, at Matt do the bulk of this answer, but but something you said may sparked an idea of what Sony because you know one of our clients that might want to invest two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the private space and they can come and utilize when we had our fund open last year, they were able to get diversification across real estate, private equity, private credit, venture cap. So they're getting access at a very low minimum. So it's a really neat kind of the opposite of what you're saying, but a lower barrier to entry to kind of dip their toe in the water to the space. And then often what happens is that they end up really liking one of those or like Matt said, it fits. We have to look at their entire portfolio and what fits best for them. And so they may really private credit, for example, might really fill a niche in their entire portfolio and they like it so they can do sidecars. So it's just kind of a neat introduction to that. So what we are working on and, and Matt, again, you know, can fill in here, but we are just kind of looking to continuously have access to new opportunities and deals so that when we do have a client that does have a hole in their portfolio or something that is a good fit for them, that we do have a solution for that. So it's really just continuing to find good deal flow, access to good partners that we can meet. And then, but in terms of Argy, I know we have other things that we're working on as well, specifically. I think the world that we're going into is getting to a place where a lot of the sponsors are wanting to go to your point to one location to get all of their money rather than going to multiple locations. What we've been doing over the past couple of years is setting up single pr- or special purpose vehicles for single investments so that a client of ours who there may be a minimum in a deal of $10 million or there may be a minimum in a deal of a million or $2 million, we're able to aggregate those clients together to give them scale so that everybody can participate. And from the sponsor standpoint, that still looks like one investment because they're investing because we're investing our client money in the aggregate through a vehicle that they're only reporting one on their end. And we're taking the the ball from them and reporting down to our clients so they don't have to send 100 emails out to, to their client base. They're sending one email to us that's giving us a quarterly report and we're disseminating that down. I think one of the other things that we're doing that's kind of interesting that's also going to be a game changer for us is we're starting a, a turnkey asset management platform that's going to give access to a lot of other RIAs that may be smaller than we are, like the $100 million to $500 million RIAs. There's going to be a component of that that's going to be alternatives, that they're going to be able to get their own clients into our alternative deals. So it's kind of a way for them to get scale without having to build it themselves, where we've already built the platform, we've already built the investment pipeline. They're just adding money into that pipeline, which allows us to go get more and bigger deals with sponsors knowing that there's more money coming in the other door. So it really opens up the universe for us in terms of, you know, getting a lot more and a lot more value for our clients because we're also getting a lot more value for their clients as well. And I think moving forward, that is the number one value proposition for millennial and Gen Z investors and clients is access. It's private investments. It is these type of structures. That is what draws people in, in my opinion. And I personally have felt this 
pushback against some of these larger brands who, you know, every five or 10 years, they seem to need a bailout. I'm just not sure the wealth management side is really moving in tandem with what's happening on the ground level. And that's why I think you're seeing groups like yours continue to gain AUM. And I'll give you, Kelly, huge kudos. You ask, I think, one of the smartest questions that nobody, hardly anybody asks in the business. You meet me, you know, you like the deals. That's great. It's a good fit. And then you do the follow-up question of, well, who are the sponsors that you hang out with? Or who are the sponsors that you invest with? Or who do you think is really smart in town that's doing other private deals? Hardly anybody asks that question. And it is like the easiest, best layup question for me because three to five people I know who I really respect, I think they do a great job. You know, I might not personally participate, but it's incredible to me how few people do it. And that is the right way to build a network in these places. So, Well, thank you. And you've been an incredible resource. You really have. I mean, the introductions that you've made have been such good ones and have, have turned into really good relationships that have helped us kind of grow in this region, but have just been, I know that if you're sending them my way, it's someone that they know what they're doing and that it's someone that we can trust and that it's definitely worth, it may not be, it may not end up being a good fit, but it's definitely worth the meeting. So we appreciate that very much. And that begs the question that I want both of you to answer. Why aren't there, why aren't there more high caliber multifamily offices in the Mid-South, Southeast? And when are yeah, you opening up your office in Nashville? <laughs> I was going to say, we don't really want more than no, those. Yes, that is a great question. We love it here. And we see, you know, it's funny, and I'll, and I'll let you talk too, Matt, but when we first started visiting down here, it might have been we came to do the site visit at Excelsior. I don't know. But it dawned on us in conversation that there was a lot less competition than we thought doing kind of looking in the boutique style, this small client advisor ratio that we talked about, this access to deal flow, this all of the services we have in-house, all the things we thought there would be more. And of course, there's a lot of great firms in this area, but it started to open our eyes that it may be a, a good idea for us to plant a flag here and continue to grow our relationships here. But to say why there isn't, I'm really not sure. It's probably a lot to what Matt's saying of why we started the TAMP is because it's just what it takes to build the robust investment we, team we have in our back office, the compliance, the HR, everything that's taken all of these 20 plus years to build that allows us to go out and offer this kind of multifamily office offering that I just don't think a lot of the small shops can do on their own. Yeah. And even the big shops, they don't want to do it. I think part of that's it's protection to profit margin, right? Everything that we do has a cost that's associated with it and we're rolling it into an AUM fee. I think the kind of interesting side effect of where we are geographically, our labor force is not as expensive as a Chicago, as a New York. So we're able to charge fees at a level that they are, but possibly lower, which also allows us to layer in more value add service behind it at a relatively low cost as well. So there's no clear answer to your question. I think really what it comes down to is profitability and really a desire to maintain that profitability rather than expand service. They'd rather lower their fee than add a service that would eat part of their fee for some reason. And it's really hard and it's really baffling to me why more firms don't do what we're doing. They have the resources to do so. They could have the personnel wherever they are, but for some reason, it's it's just not happening. And this would go towards when we did RFP process four or five years ago, pre-COVID, my wife and her sister's were fairly vocal. They did not want to have to go into a boardroom for the next 25 years and sit across the table from a bunch of 65-year-old white guys. Then when that is your your filter, you're not left with a lot of options, to be honest with you. And it's just a real indictment against the industry because it doesn't reflect the clients you serve at all. And I think a lot of groups really struggle with, and it's hackneyed at this point, but this demographic shift is happening, right? I mean, these baby boomers, like my parents are retiring and I'm really curious what's going to happen in the next five or 10 years, I think is going to be real massive shifts across the entire industry. We've done an awesome job of bridging the age gap. You know, I came from the trust company world where I was one of the youngest people. If you think about the bell curve of age that's serving in the trust company, I was one of the youngest people there at 40 at the time. I'm 46 now and I'm one of the oldest in our firm. I'm on the other end of the bell curve. We do a great job of bringing young talent in early and training them up in our systems until they're ready to move on to the next level. There are people who have spent almost their entire career, if not their entire career at Argy. They're fantastic advisors. They were raised and brought up in the system. They helped make changes to the system, design the system itself. 
and we're just in the family office alone. I built a succession plan for the family office. Shane Hall, who's kind of the second in command in the family office, is 10 years younger than I am. And then we brought in another advisor who's several years younger than he is. So we've got that natural line of succession so that not only if something happens to me or 20 years from now, Shane takes over, if this is the direction that he wants to go, he's going to have a cadre of people behind him that are going to be ready to step in and step up. But also because I want the advisors in my group, because we we deal with the whole family. We don't just deal with first gen who are generally with most of the entrepreneurs that we're dealing with. They're in their 50s, their 60s. I usually have the bulk of the conversations with them, although any one of our team members could do so. We'll match up the younger advisors with the younger family members so that, number one, there's a separation between them and their parents, but also so the person they're sitting across the table from looks like them, talks like them, has a similar experience, knows them and knows them well, knows the experience that they're going through, and they're in the same place in their life. So it's kind of unique in the industry because you always talk about these places buying these seasoned professionals. And when you look at the news, the people who are moving around are all these seasoned professionals. There's a well of young talent that's graduating from college and that's in their first, second, and third years in a wirehouse maybe or in another company that's already got a lot of experience that we're starting to bring in and just train them instead. And another thing we're learning is that a lot of our clients that are in their 50s and 60s, they're afraid of, well, they're not afraid this is a good thing, but if they're outliving some of their current advisors, so a lot of their advisors that they've either inherited from their family because that's who they always worked with or that they thought they should work with are you know getting closer and closer to retirement. So a lot of our clients love the fact that we do have this succession plan, that we do, that we are very, you know, fairly young office and it brings that excitement. And there's that diversity, like you were saying, your wife not wanting to sit across from a bunch of men at the table. I mean, they, she would like that about Argy because not only diversity in gender, but in diversity across the board is important to Argy, diversity in skill set too. So, I mean, we've brought together people with law backgrounds, business backgrounds, entrepreneurial backgrounds, you know, no backgrounds in finance at all that are coming to the table to work with our clients. So I do think that's a thing a lot of clients appreciate. So to dig into the vein a little bit more, and I think I may have asked you all this, but I'm not really sure. Has all the growth been organic? Have you done tuck-ins or, or have you done bolt-on acquisitions? We're kind of shifting away from acquisitions, which we, we've only done a handful of acquisitions. The bulk of what we've done has been organic. I think that we are more interested now in hiring talent, in hiring to specific skills and building a client base around those people than we are in actually bringing new AUM in. Although, you know, if the right opportunity comes along and there's somebody that wants to join, absolutely. We're never going to turn that down. But I think the current trend, at least in our business, is we hire the talent and we just put them into the pipeline and start growing a business around. That's what happened with me. I came in with zero business. And over time, we've just built the family office up. It's taken five years to do it, to get it to its current state. The way it looks now is not the way it looked two years ago, is not the way it's going to look in two years. We're just going to keep getting better and better and better. And that's really the greatest part about being part of this company. So Matt, now the hard questions come. We touched on some of the regulatory issues. I think compliance is going to be continued to you know, be a difficult thing for some groups to navigate. What do you think are the right questions? If somebody is approaching a firm like yourself, what are the questions they should be asking? And what are the ones that nobody asks, but they should? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think it starts with the people and resource. So I think you need to know what you're getting for what you're paying. What's the menu of services that are actually being offered? How are they integrated and how are they run? You need to interview the team because this is a team that you're probably going to be working with for a long time. So you need to ask questions about the team their background, probably need to do your own independent background checks on the team. You know, it's easy to do. We're all in a regulated environment, so you can get on broker check or the SEC website. Oftentimes people will have a complaint. I personally don't. Nobody on my team does, you know, but complaints are complaints and it's worth digging into those things and see if it's a red flag or if, if the main thing would be give the uh, advisor an opportunity to explain what happened and how they got there. And then I think it's a question of cost. I mean, one of the things that clients ask about that I hate the question is performance. You take 50 RIAs and you put them in a room, all of them investing in the public space and all of them investing in fixed income. At any given 12-month period, somebody's going to be outperforming somebody else. I think the better questions to ask are questions about process. What happens if the market does X? How do you respond? What does your deal flow look like and where are you getting it? And how do you respond to that? So the questions are less about, you know, what's your S&P portfolio doing? Because our S&P portfolio is probably doing about what everybody else's S&P portfolio is doing. The question is, how do we 
we get to the allocation that we need? How do we meet the goals that we need? How do you interface with clients? Internally, how do you communicate? There are a whole slew of questions. And actually, there are due diligence checklists out there for single family offices and multifamily offices in the types of questions that they need to ask. But I think really it starts with the people and then from the people it goes into process and then it goes into, you know, just doing the due diligence on the team. I think one of the things that clients don't do that they should do is ask for a referral, right? Who else have you been working with? And can you make an introduction so I can talk to them about what you guys have been doing for them? Because honestly, if they don't give it to you, that should be a red flag right there. And when they do, that person's going to tell you the good and the bad. And it's going to be an environment. We'll be very honest about giving referrals. We do it all the time. But clients don't ask for them. They want to know what we're doing and what it's going to mean to them. But they don't actually think about reaching out to other families that we're serving to find out what's their experience been? What's the positive? What's the negative? You know, how have things improved? Or what are you missing? You know, what were you getting before that you're not getting now? And that's a point I'll echo. First time investors often don't ask me for referrals either. And I always offer them up. And Richie and your firm are great about doing it when it's the right profile and fit. But it is kind of interesting to me. People just feel uncomfortable doing it or they just don't think to. And I would add a piece onto your statement of just like a single family office, I think very rarely is it the quantitative issues that cause blowups, right? I mean, Performance will be what it'll be, the S&P and the allocations. There might be slight differences between the firms, but for the most part, it's going to be more about after-tax and net of fees performance, in my opinion. But it's really the the qualitative issues within the firm, right? Is the founder, did he have a blow-up? Do you have a deep bench? Do you have good team unity? Are your financial advisors, like, are a group going to go rogue? I mean, those are things that I think will unwind a firm and really impact your capital much more than, you know, what index fund you're putting into, you know, into the portfolio. And people are people. I don't care how much money you have or if your family office or a young 28-year-old just starting out. I swear what people want is just expectation setting and communication. I can't tell you how far we have gotten with clients in terms of the depth of the relationship or them giving us referrals or us really being able to make a difference for them is when we constantly communicate well with them. And if they know that they can call us at any time and, you know, reach out to me, they need something, even if it's small, you know, that just goes a long way. And then also communication and what to expect from us, like what we need from them to make the planning process work. What's it going to look like going forward? Just kind of that open door, like you said, not quantitative, but very just qualitative kind of what is the process and what to expect, I think makes a huge difference. And people knowing that on the front end, instead of having an idea of, or maybe making an assumption of how much we're going to talk or how much we're going to go over their portfolio or how often they can reach out to us. I think not making any assumptions, but just putting that out in the beginning has really served us well. I know from my perspective, a mistake I made earlier in my career was not managing expectations well enough on the front end and just really being worried about making sure that you had the money for the deal and that you didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And what I've found at this stage is you're much better off being super transparent on the front end because if that LP is not the right fit for you, it's going to be a rocky road for a long time. And what I tell most people, I told Richie this when we first connected was I show you opportunities. My interests are aligned. We all hope the deals go great. What really, and if they do go great and I send you a big check, that's awesome. I think what's much more meaningful is what am I going to do when the deal goes sideways? And what can you expect from me? Like, what is that going to look like? Because that's really where I think the relationship matters much more so. And so, again, I, I love your firm approach. And we're bumping up against an hour here. I don't know if it's because we're in person or what, but you have other things to do with your day. Are there other things that you want to comment on or you want to touch on before we can kind of wind this up? Anything that we didn't hit in your uh, law school outline here that you provided before? <laughs> we're very organized. I don't think so from my end. I, I think we covered a lot of great ground. I like how the conversation went and I we really enjoyed being here with you. We love being your first in-person guest. It's very exciting. This is a big deal. Hopefully it worked. And my, <laughs> yeah. Lily and Meredith are saying it works. Oh, we, so we might have to redo this whole thing. But. <laughs> Part two. Matt, yeah, I'll give you a, an opportunity fine. to comment. I guess, you know, kind of going back to the original premise of what we're talking about, which is the single family versus multifamily, you know, the question, all of the consideration, you know, let's take money off the table, take investments off the table. The question is, what are the resources that are out there that you have access to? And then who do you have access to is really what it comes down to. For us, it's it's a matter of 
applying as many resources as we can behind our clients in a very meaningful way to add value, but also being as accessible as possible. Single family offices, multifamily offices, they both have their pros and cons. I think cost is a minor consideration. It really needs to be, I think to your point, it's all those other intangible things, the family education, getting Gen 2, Gen 3 involved so that they don't just become mailbox employees. They're actually stewards of money. There are just so many considerations that really need to go into it. I mean, we could probably do this for three hours, honestly, <laughs> but you know, I agree. We've We've burned up an hour and that's great. Well, yeah. And before we do the call out of the outro, I would also reinforce, I love the multifamily office for the platform and, and the solution set for a lot of reasons. I think one of the biggest ones is what I've learned after doing this for 10, 11 years. Anytime that you can compound your network through one relationship and you can grow your network on a multiple basis because everybody within your firm has their own network of relationships and introductions and referrals they can make. Far and away, the most powerful thing that you could have. I mean, you all have introduced me to a number of people. We've cross-referenced some folks that we both know, and it just makes all the difference in the world. So I definitely encourage people when they're looking at options out there, don't underestimate, especially for G2 and G3, the power of those networks and the relationships that these groups might have. The more people, I think, the better. So if people are interested in connecting with the firm or want to learn more about your services, what's the best way for them to reach out? Well, the website is argy.net. In terms of, is there a place, I mean, they can always reach out to me, which is kellyemeron at argy.net if they want to reach out to me that way. It's probably, probably the best way is to go to the website and then and reach out to Matt or I individually or reach out to you and ask for our <laughs> contact information. <laughs> we'll, you we'll, can give it to We'll us. provide the <laughs> contact information in the show notes and we'll tag you all when this goes live. And I'm always happy to make introductions and we didn't talk about this beforehand, but will I see you all at Derby? Yes, you'll see me there. Okay. Thurby Oaks, Derby. I haven't decided Are you a exactly. hat person? Yes hat, no hat? Oh, 100%, 100% hat. hat. New hat every every season? Yes. Okay, okay. Yes, okay. yes, okay. it's an event. Now, sometimes for Thurby or Oaks, or depending on what combination that I do, I'll borrow or reuse, but Derby gets a new, fresh hat every time. So, yes, we will meet up. Right answer. Matt, maybe not. He <laughs> likes to bet... Well, I'll let him I've, answer. I've been but. to Derby a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I typically go at some point old. during the week. The Louisville day used to be the, Oaks. the locals go like you know yeah, Thursday, Friday, uh, earlier yeah. in the week. So I, I'll probably end up going this year around Thurby or Wednesday, depending on what the weather looks like. Thurby, Thurby. I learned one thing in the conversation. That's good. There. Thurby, yeah. Oh, we we can talk. Yes, I mean, there's <laughs> a lot to know. Stuff, so. <laughs> Thank you all for coming in. It's a lot of fun, and appreciate you being guinea pigs. And you know, we'll have to do another one. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.